This podcast is generously supported by Themis Bar Review. For more information about Themis, check out themisbar.com. That is T-H-E-M-I-S-B-A-R.com. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. Right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I, David Schleicher, talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind. What's up, Sam? Hey, not much. Just you know, slogging through the terrain of the semester. Uh, I think you mean skipping through with the joy of, course, of being of a course. Yale law professor. Um, well, I'm always so happy. You are well, you're known actually, widely known as uh, you know bringer of mirth um, and, uh, and 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 rarely critical of anyone or anything. Exactly. No, I I I, I like to glad hand people and 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 accentuate the positive in, in all contributions. I, I think I think that that's important. So and today we're going to be you're going to hear Sam accentuating the positives of Milton Friedman. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, we've got a really wonderful guest, uh, Jennifer Burns from Stanford, who has a new book out, Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Um, and, uh, so let's get to it. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. Uh, we have a guest today, great, wonderful guest, Jennifer Burns, who's an associate professor of history at Stanford University. Her last book, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right, was a major, major success. Um, it got her on John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. But this, her new book, got her on Digging a Hole. So that's like really something. And now, now she's cooking with gas. Um, the new book is called Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. It's um, it's uh, it's a uh, People are very, very excited about this. It's going to be one of New York, the New York Times' thirty-three nonfiction books to read this fall. So it's uh, it's very exciting. We were really excited to get an early copy and talk to you about it. Welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here too. So the book, the beginning of the book starts off and the trying, trying to justify the title, or basically the first essay is like describing why Milton Friedman, Fried, Milton Friedman, the renowned economist, was the last conservative. So why was he? Why was he the last conservative? Yeah, so I, I knew I would get pushback on that title. Um, uh, Friedman did not write an essay that said why I'm not a conservative, but um, he did have some trouble with um, with that label. But I I feel like there's a couple of ways that it makes sense. Um, one is just very pragmatically in terms of throughout his life, he allied himself with other thinkers, with politicians, um, with political movements that took up the word conservative to identify themselves. And there's a whole separate history we could get into of why the word conservative in the American context is very different than in, say, the European context. But in post-war America, there's a conservative political movement that takes up this word, applies it to itself. And Friedman is really a um, primary part of that. He becomes an intellectual inspiration and he becomes um, actually really involved in you know, a day-to-day way with many of its leading figures, its leading ideas. So, so that's kind of one way. Um, the other, though, is stepping back a little bit more and thinking about conservatism more broadly and thinking about him as an intellectual and a thinker. 
And what he really did was try to conserve um, approaches to the economy that were being pushed out by the more um, formalist and mathematical turn of the discipline in the post-war era. So in some ways, he's also the last institutional economist. Um, his work was deeply empirical. Um, he looked at institutions from banks to the American Medical Association. And when a lot of economists were ready to completely abandon the study of history or um, the sort of development of theories out of deep empirical work, he was not. And so he really pushed back against the discipline um, and tried to then bring in some of these more time-honored approaches, tried to modernize them and tried to show how they were still applicable. So you won't get any argument from me about uh, the conservative part of the title. I mean, obviously, you're coming out of kind of United States history debates where there's been a mushrooming, which you've been part of, of, you know, histories of conservatism. And it's just very clear that Milton Friedman would fit fit in it, although, as you know, as you say, as a philosopher of liberal freedom. But what about the last part? I mean, why last? Because as I see it, you know, he's he's initiating a kind of neoliberal era in which this form of conservatism is going to have a lot of traction until, of course, uh, it it's its alliance with social conservatism breaks down. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, there's, there's two parts of that too. One is just a bit of a provocation to get people thinking about what is the current state of conservatism in 2023? Where is it going? And I think that this label, this kind of brand, if you will, is always going to be with us. But uh, the formula, you know, maybe the label on the bottle is the same, but what's in the bottle, I think, is changing right now. And so I wanted to sort of stop and look back and say, Freeman represents a certain kind of conservative synthesis that is probably going to, he's probably the last of that kind. It doesn't mean his ideas um, are going to disappear by any means, but the way these ideas were forged and sundered together, particularly amid the pressures of the Cold War, is just not going to come again. It, 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 something will happen um, that will be different. Then the other reason that I, there's a bit of a layer to that, um, and in some ways I feel the title sort of cuts against one of my primary arguments because Friedman really ceases to be simply speaking to conservatives and influencing conservatives in the last decades of his life. And he really becomes a broader figure, a figure who's important to liberals, uh, important to centrists, important to people who even don't think they have a politics and don't realize how many of their presuppositions about the idea about the world have been shaped by his ideas. So in some ways, um, whatever Friedman we're left with is not going to be confined to the conservative movement or the conservative side of the spectrum. And really, he really was only confined to that, I would say, for kind of the middle part of his career. And after that, he 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 became a much larger figure. That's a great answer. And, and clearly, you're right that, you know, what 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 whatever his form of conservatism was, it ends up having a big impact on American liberalism in the neoliberal age. But what I want to ask about first is kind of tradecraft. You know, you and I are card carrier historians. David's, you know, attempted some history. In a total heathen book, but, now at a hack. Uh, so there you we, go. He, he, he didn't know what he was doing. So I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, how you devise this project. I mean, it's heavily archival, you know, pioneering exposure to, you know, uh, Friedman's papers at the Hoover Institution, you know, near your building. But 
as I read it, it, it kind of begins, um, you know, after some kind of like biographical stuff as being a story about the discipline of economics and, you know, a network of people both, you know, nationally, but especially at Chicago. But then there's a transition in the middle of the book. And, you know, um, as you say, Friedman moves from being a kind of academic economist to an activist and icon really on a global stage. And it just seems to me the kind of methodological challenge of doing that history is different. I mean, the first we, we know how to do, it's, it's not hard, but it's, uh, it's not, sorry, it's not easy, but it's not hard. It's about, you know, reconstituting the network, studying his papers, telling us when he says this or that. And in, in these relationships, including as I'll get to later to women, but, um, I just I just worried that at the at the middle of the book, we get a completely different challenge as a historian. And I wonder if you would address like how you thought about that transition. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a surprise in that when I began the project, I was interested in Friedman, the icon and Friedman, the popularizer, you know, Friedman, the YouTube star, Friedman on Donahue, the I was fascinated by the free to choose television series. And in, in large part, because I was coming from writing a book about Rand, where I had really spent time thinking about how she became a kind of cultural touchstone among libertarians and conservative youth in particular. So that was kind of primed to think of Friedman that way. And then, but if he's popularizing the ideas, okay, well, what are the ideas? And then I sort of fell into the history of economics, which does not make up a big part of how we teach American intellectual history. It's kind of this strange bywater, and it, but it's full of really great scholars doing really interesting things. So I kind of tumbled into that world. And then, um, and then part of it was going to the Chicago archives and, and seeing all the economic ideas that were this great ferment about how to respond to the Great Depression. It was not at all what I thought. I, I sort of had this caricature in my mind that in Chicago in the 30s, they would be like, oh, yeah, whatever. Some people are out of work. It's just the market doing its thing. And I was really astonished to see how concerned um, Friedman's professors were and, and how connected they were to politics and how much they were trying to push different reforms. So then I kind of iterated back and forth between the archival work and the history of economic secondary sources. And you're right. There's kind of, I think in the beginning, I'm really putting him in context of the 1930s. Then in the middle of the book, he starts to create his own context at the University of Chicago. And I have about three chapters on the 1950s. And I realized I just had to lay those side by side because so much was happening. And that's really where he consolidates his thought. And it becomes still drawing upon that 30s and 40s experience, but also distinct and different. And so I feel like by the middle of the book, I've really kind of fleshed out his major ideas. And then we kind of see them burst onto the stage and at that point, I had to just make choices about what to show. And um, some of it was following sources and some of it was um, what I was drawn to. So, you know, I, I have a chapter on his role in um, Great Britain and his role in Chile, but I don't really talk about Israel. I don't really talk about China. And I hope like someone else goes and writes that book and focuses on that. But I just felt if I did it, truly, truly global, then it would be like three books in one and and it's enough, you know, so maybe just kind of lay the groundwork for someone else to do that work. 
So I want to get into the, the early part, the history of economics. And I, I mean, I could ask you about a million questions about the banking reforms that the University of Chicago professors put together, <laughs> which are actually very modern in a lot of their respects. But it's a, um, the, um, the question I want to ask about is the, the relationship between monitors, monetarism and Keynesianism looking backwards. So you spend a lot of time in the book like establishing he was never a Keynesian, you know, like it's like he had these teachers, but that was never who he was. But looking back, the distinction between, and obviously like the monetarists and the Keynesian were at war over monetary and fiscal policy for a large part of Frieden's life, which is obviously one of his biggest intellectual. But looking back, it, they look a little more similar than um, than uh, than uh, they might otherwise. They're obviously both about using government policy of one form or another to bring the economy back into kind of a long run equilibrium. It's, they're not living like let let things crash like the Austrians or the real business cycle people, and they're not about using disasters to radically reshape things and kind of radically different theories of money. They're both about different methods of uh, of resuming. Uh, a kind of economic stability during over the in response to a crisis, a crisis, and you can even see like in modern market what we call market monitors like Scott Sumner, they're like effectively neo Keynesians in a lot of ways. I mean, there's some distinctions, but they're not that different really. And so, um, to uh, what what's at stake in saying like in like in looking back at the difference between monetarism and Keynesianism in your view? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great question because as I was in the 30s. Um, I, that was the moment where I had to actually stop reading the secondary literature because the secondary literature produced in the 60s, 70s and beyond was just suffused with this um, Keynesian versus monetarism. And everything was sort of seen through that lens. And when you go to the 30s, that's, those formations aren't there. And so a lot of it looks like what we would today call unconventional monetary policy, monetary policy through fiscal means. And you have these debates with Keynes and these Chicago you know, monetary economists who are like, you know, Keynes is like, you know, let's do more, uh, wants to do more monetary and they want to do more fiscal. And they're kind of arguing about this. And you're like, wait, they're not where they're supposed to be. Like, no, you're supposed to be in that corner and you're supposed to be in that corner. And here's what you're supposed to be saying to each other. So what I realized is that the Keynesian monetarist debate kind of came down as a framework around economic thought, say, early 60s. And it stayed, I would say, way longer than it should have. And it was probably that that was not the real action by, say, 1980. But people had separated out. And Keynesian monetarism became to have symbolic force around Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, planning, no planning, centralization. You know, all of these other values lined up. And so um, stuff got split that didn't necessarily need to be split. So I actually think what's happening now in terms of economic ideas and economic policy is kind of a resynthesis um, of some of these ideas that don't necessarily need to be split. And you saw that happening even in the 80s when a lot of monetarist ideas got absorbed by the New Keynesians. And but they couldn't really say we're into Friedman now. And Friedman couldn't say, like, these are the ones who have my ideas. So he kind of cast his lot, you know, with rational expectations and the the, the for, sort of forced Chicago school, which is actually very different than him methodologically, but shared his politics. So I came to think of the politics as just kind of almost the veil that was obscuring what was going on. And so part of what I'm trying to do is by telling a 20th century story in the dawn of the 21st century is to say, we can look at this without this, this veil or this scrum over it, and we can kind of see what's actually happening. And then maybe we can extract some things that we want to still work with today. 
So I, I, it 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 is it it is the first half, especially uh, is into the fifties is is a fascinating intellectual history. But you know, I guess I, I'm going to ask David's question a little differently, not in terms of the proximity of different approaches that people were fighting over, but in a sense, what what. Friedman also cared about and what people in his milieu also cared about that really, you know, ends up playing a huge role in, in conservatism and it's it, the form it takes after the 1970s. And that's what you repeatedly refer to as the philosophy of individual freedom. And, you know, it connects a lot of people, you know, uh, Friedrich Hayek and, and Henry Simons and so forth before Friedman's even in the picture. And, of course, he's doing specific things and developing, you know, trademark positions and he's working on his monetary history and all of that is brilliantly narrated. But at the same time, I, I just wonder, you know, in a sense, why you focus so much on the intra-economic debates without focusing on in, in the way that some other authors do on the economics profession and the kind of, you know, ph- philosophical and political goals, which, you know, that, that, that are also at the center of your story. Um, and, and really the last third, especially. Yeah. I try to lay that out in the, I have a kind of try to separate out his economic ideas from the moment when he is working with F.A. Hayek and, um, sort of becoming very important to law and economics. Um, so I just felt like those were to their stories that happened together, but I, it was yes. too hard to narrate them together. And okay. so I think where, I mean, I don't know that Friedman makes these huge contributions to thinking through the foundations of the philosophy of individualism. I think that he kind of eventually comes up with a synthesis around freedom, <clears throat> which many conservatives come up with. Okay. Freedom is our cardinal our value, our North Star, I think almost what Freeman brings is a sensibility around that idea. One is very optimistic, you know, very a a belief that um, freedom, prosperity, you know, almost in all good things go together framework, Um, an ability to express that very quickly um, and an ability to link that back to a set of, you know, um, purportedly objective economic and scientific ideas so that although he's talking in an ethical register and talking about freedom, he's also arguing in terms of efficiency and like what works. And so um, I feel like his greatest contributions as a thinker are really in the economic realm. And he then sort of used that to jump onto these other um, discourses and ideas. So he's not really sitting down and he doesn't know a ton he knows that totalitarianism is bad, right? But he's not right. really thinking like actually how how do fascist movements grow and prosper or like what is the taproot of collectivism? He's not really doing that work in a profound way. So I wouldn't I feel it would be somewhat of a disservice to spend that too much time on that. Um, also, that being said, I think there is some great work out there that weaves Friedman into these broader um narratives. You know, I'm thinking Angus Bergen's work on the Mount Pelerin Society, but that doesn't really dig into his economic ideas. So part of it is thinking like, what do I have to offer in terms of what we already know and what our existing resources are about Friedman? Okay. That's really interesting because it leads into like really my main question about 
the choices you made in the book. I mean, because as you said, I mean, even if you want to say that intellectually he was a brander and repackager, let's say on, on the philosophical front and on, as a kind of publicist more than anything else, it's a choice to privilege um, kind of the intellectual history of intra-professional debates um, in which he was also engaged, obviously, um, relative to those other things. And I guess, you know, I read the book and I, I was really curious, um, in a sense, who Jennifer Burns is in the following way. I mean, you you know, we all know as historians that we make choices. We're not just telling the truth about history. Um, and, you know, you're reporting a lot of archival stuff, but you're also a kind of narrator and you're framing a, narrat- a narrative. And, uh, you know, a lot of people today are obviously are critical of neoliberalism. There's this, you know, mushering, rooming of neoliberal studies. We've had Gary Gerstel on the podcast. Uh, you kind of abjure that word while also noting that Milton Friedman, you know, called himself one, you know, in, in those kind of brief Brief day. Um, Well, I mean, but, you know, uh, you know, claims on, you know, providing a new liberalism are are really important generally um, to, to, you know, Friedman and and his ilk. And I guess I'm just again, this is kind of a methodological question. You know, um, you draw lines uh, some places rather than others of what's entitled to to judgment. You know, and, you know, for example, I mean, I want to ask a little bit about this later, but, you know, he's a pioneering feminist within the economics profession, and you're very happy to praise that. You know, he's he's not as, you know, worth praise. And in fact, you blame him when it comes to his civil rights record. But I guess, you know, I, I was I was struck by, in a sense, how neutral or non-committal you are as a narrator when it comes to like his actual achievement in the world, which is a neoliberal victory. And so I just like, why? Um, let's see. So one, I, I don't know. I think it's a bit of a strong read to say I call him a feminist. I think he um, okay. treats the the women economists that he encounters um, much better than do other Okay. In comparative uh, terms he, is all. He, yeah, he yeah. definitely is. He does not have any type of systemic grip on the problem of male dominance in economics. Um, so, okay, what do I judge? And, and I, I will say again to why I focus on the economic ideas, because I do think um, what made him innovative as a policy thinker was to take um, the economic paradigm and to try to expand it beyond economics, right? To try to say like, what if we take um, this idea of the the price system allocating seriously and take it beyond you know, pork belly futures and imagine it allocating all kinds of other things. Um, so, and I guess I'm not really interested in standing up and making a big statement about where the world is today and um, that it, you know, I guess it, it just doesn't really move me. Um, I guess I see myself as supplying the Tinder for people, other people to set those fires. Um, I think there are lots of achievements that i felt I did try to elucidate um, that Friedman's able to do. And I think we have all benefited from, um, say, his clarification of of the power of monetary disturbances and the ways to stabilize a broader economy. And that's like really boring stuff. 
But I actually think that's not, it, one doesn't get enough of that. And so it's also been very interesting to read in um, the economic literature and you just get a different narrative. People are like, hey, we didn't have a recession for 25 years. That's pretty good. And if you read historians who aren't economists, all you'll hear about is, is like the terrible inequality of those past 25 years, right? So I think one is more attributable to Friedman than the other. Um, you know, I don't think it's correct to say like Friedman caused all the inequality we're dealing with. Um, I think it's actually a little more arguable to say like some of Friedman's ideas increased our economic sophistication so that we manage the economy better for a certain amount of time. Um, so I guess even though I wrote an intellectual biography and a lot of it is about the power of ideas, at the same time, I, I think that there's this type of glib analysis that blames too much and gives too much credit to ideas and thinkers and intellectuals when I think that there's lots of bigger forces out there in the world that if they're lucky, they maybe channel or tap into or ride for a little bit, but but I don't see them as maybe as causal as one might think. So Fordsworth, I thought the focus on economic ideas was terrific. And I think that the like the the um, the the uh, the history of economic ideas is too often done by economists, which I think is great when they do it also. But it's a um, it uh, often lacks a little scope to understanding what the problem is. So uh, my great mentor, Doug Irwin, wrote this wonderful book about the history of international tr ideas about trade. And it's like very internal to the debate. And this kind of does a nice job of doing that. So I thought that was great. I have a couple of questions that kind of follow on there. One is about the internal thing. When you say you he's not a feminist or not. One of the things that strikes me as like really interesting about the work was the, was the discussion of, um, of his interest in the, in the work that he kind of draws on, on, on consumption decisions as themselves important about economics. So that like the, the home economics into uh, economic theory, um, which strikes me as like, other than the discussions of monetary, like maybe the central single innovation, right? So like the permanent income hypothesis being mm -hmm. a, um, and as a, and we now spend all of our time talking about nothing other than consumption, right? So that we ask about consumer sentiment all the time, like it's a normal thing to talk about. There's a big report. And, and so I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, like what, what drove that move, how it related, because I thought that was in a lot of ways, like you give that among there are a lot of other things you could focus on in terms of his ideas. There are a lot of things going on, but kind of pride of place is like a central of central importance to his thinking. So, yeah, I mean, that goes back to this question about him being a conservative um, in his methods. And also with this, you know, he he is not a he does seem to have been a political supporter of Roosevelt. Um, he definitely supported portions of the New Deal. He did not embrace the New Deal wholeheartedly, but his first job was on a New Deal project and he was literally surveying people. I saw the surveys in the archive, like how many yams did you buy this week? Um, how much did you spend on clothing? So he just from the beginning was just deeply immersed in literally individual decision-making from these individual surveys. And so I think he always saw something interesting in that. And what made it distinctive is that the rest of economics thought that wasn't interesting. They wanted to kind of start from the top and go down with these bigger models and these big, you know, the federal budget, interest rates, these just big aggregates. And so he really was granular, <clears throat> excuse me, when others <clears throat> were ag were aggregators. And that's, I think, what ended up, he ended up being in contact with so many women because women were left out of that turn. They were thought not to basically have much to say. And so he had kind of access to this untapped intellectual world that he did not abandon, in part because of his relationships and in part because I do think he had that conservative cast of mind that didn't automatically assume new equals better. 
So I, I really like that point you've just made because it 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 connects to a question I have, but I think you kind of answered it. You know, I, you know, you you did a really interesting New York Times op-ed the other day, kind of launching the book, taking you know advantage of the naming of Claudia Golden as the latest uh, economics Nobel Prize winner. And I guess, you know, I, I really appreciate, if not Friedman's feminism, then, you know, your historiographical feminism, which, you know, is, is a threat in your career, you know, paying attention to women who contribute to the history of conservatism. And that's, uh, to me, that's like a, a, a really important move. But then I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you want to reflect a bit on how the story of conservatism changes once one places Ayn Rand in the frame and once one places Rose Director and, you know, uh, the, you know, the, and, and so I, I'm, I'm, because, because inclusion is one thing and then interpretation of how it changes the general story once the neglect is, let's say, remedied is another. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's an interesting through line from Rand to, you know, Rose Director to Margaret right. Reed to all those folks, which which you wouldn't necessarily think they have that much in common. But I think the combined impact of them is to create narratives and stories that place these abstract meanings in a more human context. And I actually think that's that is kind of a secret sauce, not just of Friedman's career, but of the broader conservative movement, that these ideas then become legible to people who otherwise wouldn't see them. So you don't have to be an economist to really understand this interpretation about the Great Depression um, and to read that book and to follow it. Um, you know, you don't have to have sort of been up on all the debates about whatever it may be, the rise of totalitarianism, individual liberty. Ayn Rand has kind of distilled those down to a bunch of cartoonish-like right. fiction figures, but right. she's captured something of the emotional tone there as well. And so... I think that I think that's a lot of the success, right? Another um, we haven't talked about Phyllis Schlafly, who's obviously in a much different register. Mm -hmm. um, Schlafly is, I would say, doesn't do the narratives as much as she does the organizing, figuring out how to get the networks together. But I think if you look at these women and you put them in the history of conservatism, you see a movement that's figured out how to speak beyond itself and beyond its core constituencies. And a lot of the people who figured that out were actually women who may or may not, their roles may or may not have been appreciated. I mean, from from what I've learned, and Rose Friedman um, uh, really took herself out of the archive, so um, some of the most interesting questions can't be answered, but she seems really to have pushed Friedman to become a public intellectual and really cheerleaded that role and actually supported him in the mechanics of that role quite a bit, like literally helping him get the columns written and the TV shows produced. And I think we've just kind of missed that, um, you know, how important that role was. And I think Friedman would be really different if he didn't have these. When I'm like, who is Milton Friedman? I'm like, if you take away the women, you get a much diminished figure. You get an, 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 a good economist. I don't think you get a world historical figure of the same impact. So I wanted to ask about another type of relationship. So in I, when I the one of the kind of cartoon stories I had in my head was that uh, like Aaron Director was the institution developer, developer, and um, and Milton Friedman was the ideas guy. And then there's like and the by the way, also the detail that Aaron Director grew up best friends with Mark Rothko has to be one of the yeah. one of the cooler things that I discovered in that book. Um, um, uh, but. 
one of the stories in the book is exactly how institutionally focused Friedman was himself. There you have a long description of the moving of the Cowles Commission from Chicago to Yale, um, where it still is, um, uh, um, and the constant fights he was engaged in over faculty hiring. And it was a particular form, which is that he was like really excited, was not excited about having lots of people disagreed with him around him. You know, like it was yeah. a it was a, uh, a narrowing rather than broadening of the of the people in his net in his like physical universe and in on his team on some level. And so I just wonder a little bit like why. So I mean, this is someone who's so famously combative in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. You would have thought I well, I would have thought um, that it would have been the opposite of that. That like, it would, what could be more fun than having a podcast with someone you disagree with all the time? What could be more fun than, um, uh, than and so I just want a little bit, like, like, so how should we think about Friedman as an institution builder? Why did he, was he so committed to like getting, making sure that people he didn't like weren't at the University of Chicago where they could have been at the University of Rochester? You know, like I just didn't, didn't quite understand the motivations. Yeah, it's interesting. I, there are very few people, there were some, and maybe it's just that I didn't focus on them. Most of his relationships aligned politically and, and personally, like his closest friends shared his politics and, and his economics. And it was like a continuous kind of debate society, but a debate society about let's kind of flesh out the details of what we agree on rather than going hammer and tongs. And so it is, it, he was an incredible institution builder and he really created this kind of concentrated force at Chicago. Now, in later years, there are plenty of people he disagrees with who come into Chicago. And some people are annoyed that I use the term Chicago as sort of shorthand. They're like, well, there were other economists at the University of Chicago who didn't agree with Friedman. I'm like, okay, fine. I just am trying to use fewer words. So I use Chicago as a shorthand. But um, what was interesting to me is that it kind of tells two stories. One is the power of focused analysis and a group of people who are all focusing, kind of share the priors and are focusing on a set of problems. But this is done within a broader disciplinary context that's hostile. So they have a sense of themselves as a sort of guerrilla insurgency. And so what this suggests to me is the importance of heterodoxy within disciplines, Um, the importance and the power, and that Friedman did need a certain level of comfort to develop his ideas. Um, but he then took them out to other institutions and was fought vociferously um, for them. And so it seems to me that if you took Chicago out of economics, you'd have quite a diminished field. Um, and so I just, that strikes me as very interesting among sort of contemporary debates about the uniformity of thought in our major disciplines in which there isn't heterodoxy and heterodoxy cannot survive. And in economics, there is no longer heterodoxy that the top places, um, you know, people who don't want to do mathematical economics or the Austrians, they've got their own ground that they're tilling. And even economists who are more political economists, I mean, I think that a lot of things broke off of economics and went into other affiliated disciplines and economics just became narrower and narrower. So I think it's a little bit of a a dialectic. You need a certain narrowness, but I think you also need tension and conflict. Um, And I think those can be really productive. I mean, one of the things I just want to quickly follow up that is interesting that um, is that you talk about the costs of it as well. Like like when you talk about him going down the Lucas line on the rational expectation line, that's like a sign of like where where group affiliation is distorting 
the like the real if, if yes. the real benefit is the economic thought, then if you end up joining with people who have or you think are wrong on the economic thought because they're also conservatives, that's like a real distortion. And it's a really bad thing to have happen. That is a problem. I think I think that absolutely does happen. And it's towards I think Freeman's fame becomes its own force in his life and his, you know, development into a type of figurehead and his sense that he's in this pitched battle and he's going to take his allies where he finds them. Um, and so he's very critical of like real business cycle and letters. You know, he's got, I've got these really negative letters between he and Fama, like, but he won't say it, you know, he won't go out there and say it, you know? So, um, so yes, that is the, that's the dark side. That's the curdle when, you know, my team versus your team becomes too strong and, and really gets in the way. So let's turn just briefly to the kind of back half or back third of the book. You know, as you've explained, you know, the first two thirds of the book have a certain character. And then there are some chapters at the end that just are are doing different things, um, partly assessing, you know, how um, Milton and, and Rose are kind of managing the dissemination of their ideas Um and sometimes in incredibly powerful ways, but also like they're not the only ones that who are 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 you know shaping Friedman's legacy. Um, and as you say, there's just a thousand forces that are in play at a certain point, leading to you know his his canonization as as a, a kind of libertarian you know icon. I guess. Um, you know, as I read the the, I'm asking a, a general question, then I'll ask a specific question about these chapters. The general one is is kind of a repeat of the earlier question in a different way, because I definitely hear that you have an interest in a histor as a historian in like, let's say, playing fair and making sure that we don't, you know, overstate Friedman's contribution to our neoliberal world. And, and then I hear you also as having a, 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 an interest in, let's say, you know, saving Friedman from the contempt in which he might otherwise be held in certain quarters. But there, there's no kind of stronger verdict of kind of like, you know, w- what should we in the end conclude about this person's contribution to, you know, human affairs and I, I, I just want to press you one more time on like what, why that stance. Um, let's see. So the last third of the book, the last few chapters, rather, I have uh, he's done his major work. So there wasn't a ton to say. Um, there's not new ideas. There's just the unfolding of other ideas. Um, and so a lot of it is what other people are making of his ideas, and sort of where they're taking them. And some people are taking them, um, yeah, in, in directions that are problematic for sure. Um, you know, I talk in, in detail about the Chile case, although the actual role of Milton Friedman, the person is pretty small. Um, Milton Friedman, the symbol is much broader and much bigger. So, so right. I'm trying to, I think, show some of the distance between those. Um, and then, so I guess what, what I cover after that has, and then there's, um, he's also taken up as kind of a symbol in British political debate, but he's actually not 
super involved in the political debate. So I think that right? What's that? And widely misinterpreted. They call widely themselves monetarists when they're not, which was weird. That was a weird result. Right. So I think I think it's hard to get a verdict on Friedman in the end because there are so many Friedmans at play mm-hmm. and so many different people mobilizing him. And I would say that it's really what I'm most interested in is the kind of 30,000 foot view. And I think that Friedman offered some ways out of sort of cul-de-sacs and dead ends that were had emerged. At the same time, I do think a lot of what happened was what Friedman wanted to prevent. So I talk a lot about, I think it's been underappreciated, and certainly I didn't appreciate it until I read deeply for this book, the ways in which inflation rearranged and disrupted so many different economic relationships. And because of the disruption of inflation, the some of the new ideas that Friedman had proposed were then able to be taken up. Um, so I think, but he didn't want the inflation to happen. So he almost didn't want his ideas to be as effective as they were. Um, and then I think that some of these ideas are maybe different in the first five to 10 years of their life than spun out over time. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the sort of homeowner politics and trying to adjust, you know, taxation policy in the light of inflation, like that absolutely needed to happen. People needed to say, wait a second, you designed a tax regime for a no inflation environment. And now we're in an inflationary environment. Like we have to change that. Um, Run that out 25 to 30 years. Has that really reduced spending on education? Is that a bad thing? For sure. I think we could look at that as a consequence um, that that was negative. So, um, I mean, I guess I feel like taking a verdict on Friedman, as I said, is to take a verdict <clears throat> on the neoliberal era. And um, I guess I'm not willing to say like everything since 1980 has been a terrible mistake. And let's go back to the world before. I'm just not. I I, sure. I think there were some good things in the, you know, Tron Glorias, but I'm not going to say like we should go back there right away. I think there were many things that didn't work. Um, so... I guess what I'm trying to say is like, what can we find from Friedman to take with us as we move forward? And I think there's plenty, there's plenty of use in those ideas, um, even if you know they're not going to be applied exactly how we wanted them to. Yeah, I, just to be clear, I totally appreciate it when you kind of forthrightly take a stand and say, you know, I'm 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 not just trying to correct the record or distinguish between Friedman and his reception, but you know remind us of the value as you see it. So I like on the Chile chapter, that's that this problem is kind of in play, obviously, because, um, I, it's not, it doesn't seem as simple as saying, well, he was there and, you know, the Mont Pelerin society met there and, you know, Harberger's student, Arnold Harberger's students were, you know, was very, very Harberger himself implicated and, in, in what went down. Um, I think it's totally reasonable to kind of take an, an, a corrective agenda to note that, you know, it was more less Friedman than Friedman's ideas, but, you know, um, I, I get, I, I'm, I'm wondering like where the line is between, you know, apologetics and correction. Cause as you know, there's this Tim Barker Substack post, which basically worries that about your over identification, with Friedman to, you know, to the point of, in a sense, saving him from the charges of his involvement um, or his enthusiasm about 
the repression and so forth. So I, 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 this is again, just you, we can make it methodological. Like how do you correct without overcorrecting? And um, do, you, you, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, the Friedman, the symbol continues to be very powerful. Um, and insofar as I'm trying to say it's not really accurate to use him as a symbol, that that's going to arouse opposition. So I think the real question, which I think is debatable, is um, if you have a certain body of technocratic expertise, um, should you engage with the regime, an illiberal regime? Um or are you better off not engaging and telegraphing through your lack of engagement your moral disapproval of that regime? Okay. Even if in your judgment, your technocratic fix would be beneficial Good. to the people who currently live under that regime. Good. And I think I think I think I haven't heard anyone argue that, but that seems to be the yeah. implicit argument. And I do think Excellent. it's of a piece of the kind of um, human rights movement, you know, some of you've written ago that that boycott. Um, divestment, this type, but this is how we show engagement is a, is a moral crime because engagement means endorsement. And so therefore the only way to show your moral approbation is disengagement. It, and there's an echo of it in some of our social dynamics today, right? That if I disagree with you, I must not engage with you politely or as a fellow human being, because that would somehow be tantamount to endorsing you. So I don't think Friedman saw any of this, um, but I think that's what we can take away from it. I think he got invited. He went. He said what he had to say. He was very obtuse, for sure, in noticing what was going on. And it's weird. I just quote at length from this travelogue that it, I think I'm the first scholar to use this document that he records basically right when he comes back. And he's like, oh, yeah, there were soldiers with guns everywhere. You know, it just doesn't like. And then he compares Pinochet to, you know, like Reagan or Nixon, like he's just not, he's not getting it. There's definitely like a huge blind spot. And um, at the same time, I still think there is an argument that might even be the right argument to say like, no, if I think I have a fix that will make things better, I will go and I will give people my fix as opposed to just protecting my reputation or, or making a certain type of um, argument. I just, I think the facts are just not really known. And I looked at a lot of the discussions. There's a narrative that the coup was done in the service of neoliberalism. And that really just doesn't stack up in, um, it just doesn't stack up in the, the timeline, the chronology, the actions of the players. And so I just, I feel like that's just not sort of really known. So a lot of the criticisms are coming from a place, uh, uh, the criticisms of Friedman are coming from a place of ignorance because it's better to be ignorant because it then allows you to pull up Friedman and deploy him as a symbol and as a weapon. You know, and we could look at, there's like the Suharto mafia and all these other cases where economists were like employed by and functionaries of repressive state regimes, but we always go to Friedman and his six day trip to Chile. And so that's honestly like one of the things I was most interested about. Like, why is this the one, you know, we can all think step back and there's certain causes that people get really worked up on and others that right. might seem morally equivalent that nobody cares to talk about. Right. And yeah. so why, why does that happen? And I think it's this sort of unique history of 
that region and his connections with, um, you know, American and European elites who can get these things into the newspapers. You know, I, 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 I really appreciate a couple of points you're making. One, one is that, it, you know, rightly or wrongly, Orlando Latelli's narrative kind of became hegemonic. Um, and thanks to Naomi Klein and others, and you know, there's a question about whether it deserves to be, but you know, at the time it wasn't hegemonic, and there are complicating facts. But you know, we 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 do still have to, as historians, have our own moral judgment, um, not just kind of contextualize. And 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 I also appreciate your point that in a sense the. The, the at the same time the moral criteria are changing like through this very case the human rights you know movement and and human rights consciousness kind of might might lead people after the fact to very different views than they might have had before um, those developments David yeah so I mean also the pro engagement is such an an assumption among economists that that would be the right thing to do. So like free trade, like opposition to sanctions is kind of a classic like thing, you know, like say, you know, or kind of like Kantian, you know, countries that trade with one another don't work, go, go to war. It's like all kind of baked into set of ideas. And I kind of think it actually comes out quite nicely from going from Friedman, the economist and like the deep to like his weird engagement with politics is that he was engaging it with it with some of the uh, kind of background assumptions of the field. I had a um, uh, a couple other questions. One is like a kind of like a, a more of a again more of these more looking back. Um, so one of the things you note at the end is like how weak his relationship was to Paul Volcker and what Volcker did. So Volcker was like not a monetarist. Um, but he was in, you know, like he's the one who broke inflation and monetarism's relationship to post Volcker monetary becomes a, let's just say a more complicated one. Uh, it's less straightforward as a critique anymore. Um, and so what I was left with was his role as kind of like other things that came around and became important in the, in the 60s and 70s was a critique of a staid set of assumptions that were that had built up he's a critic of of kind of 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 a variety of new deal monetary policy of new deal economic policy and much like you saw kind of on the like new left critique of the exact same people coming so the question is like should i think of him as a kind of like a necessary corrective to the um uh kind of like the um i don't know how boring and a, a kind of like a, a subsidy you could perfect economics and, and society through input output models and the corporation. And so like a figure like a new, like a really powerful critic, but less powerful as a generator once those things are broken down. Is that a fair, a fair read? Yeah, I think in some ways it is. I mean, I think there's a side of Friedman that is, you know, focused on like epistemological modesty. Like you just can't know this. You can't know enough. And I tell a story, he has this anecdote of, of, during wartime, being able to actually design um, certain metals for use in Warcraft using, you know, uh, sort of regression models and finding out they didn't actually work in the real world. So, and there's an epistemic, you know, epistemic modesty maybe is one of the features of conservatism in the 20th century because they're arguing against um, a certain kind of um, yeah. expansive welfare state or technocratic. So, yes, that's part of it. But then, um, then he does have these very specific solutions and he gets very attached to using his specific solutions a specific way. And so one thing that was really interesting is seeing in the latter part of his career when 
what I saw, again, with a bigger contextual scope, is that he's destabilized so many assumptions, got people to try his way of doing things, and really reoriented a lot of streams of policy and thinking, but they haven't done the specific thing he wants to do. They haven't done, like, they're still doing two-week lagged reserve reporting, and he doesn't want that, you know? And because of that, the whole thing is sort of a failure. And so... I think with Volcker, I mean, I do think Volcker was more influenced by Friedman than um, we have understood or given him credit for. One, because of Volcker being a Democrat. The two, and the two really did not like each other. And also because we haven't had, um, the Fed is very slow in releasing its documentation. And a lot of the first histories were written within that five-year window. Um, and so we now know that Volcker was more, he tried to look at the money supply and let interest rates go. And everyone says, oh, that was a faint. He wasn't really doing it. It seems more that he was really doing it and he didn't expect things to go the way they went. And it pretty quickly unraveled on him. Um, so then Friedman is so frustrated because, you know, his, his M2 is not the metric of monetary policy. But if you step back and look at his broader points about rules over discretion and the role of monetary policy in the economy, like he's, he's kind of triumphed on all of those pieces. Um, So, I mean, I feel like that is, I feel like the, to go back to like, where do I, you know, assess his contributions? It is the understanding of, um, the Great Depression, the monetary dimensions of the Great Depression, and um, the importance of monetary policy for stabilization more broadly. And I think those are those those have been brought, you know, lessons that have been imbibed sort of across the political spectrum and are significant, even if they're hard to, to see. They just create the sort of backdrop of a more economically stable world. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you could certainly see the the kind of supersizing of our beliefs in the what the Federal Reserve can do as a a Friedman. But one one thing I thought was interesting was that you foreground like the really big, the macro. And he has, was a font of, famously a font of micro ideas as well. And like you put those to the background. And so you don't really, you, I mean, you reference charter schools right at the beginning, but kind of, and or vouchers. And you don't, you don't do a ton with a lot of these things. And so I was wondering maybe as a last question, which is what is the smaller idea of Friedman's that you think that is most underrated and that we should spend the most time thinking about of, of the universe of weird ideas he came up with. What was the coolest, weirdest one that we should probably spend a little bit more time thinking about? Um, and it's not really a small idea. I mean, I do think that um, school vouchers slash, you know, injection of competition into private schools. I think that's the idea that is still unfolding. I don't I know that, the you know, the politics around vouchers have changed quite a bit, but I think. Uh, you know, there's just been, even in the COVID era, a sort of new take on what public education can do and not do. And I, I think the reading wars that are unfolding right now are just really, really interesting. We, we seem to have lost the ability to teach children how to read in some very profound ways. And hearing this anecdotally, reading it in the paper. And I think I, I tend to think that wouldn't happen in a competitive economic system um, for public schooling. If some public schools weren't teaching kids how to read and others were, I think you'd see... Um, you'd see some changes pretty quickly. So I feel like that idea is still unfolding. I also feel like drug legalization is still unfolding, but in ways that, um, you know, Friedman could not really have foreseen at all um, because he just had something different in mind, I think, when he thought about, you know, hippies of the 1960s. So that's another one that's still being taken up, right, constantly. So 
I mean, I know we're supposed to say like neoliberalism is dead and it's fallen apart and the synthesis is over, but um, I see a lot of ways in which these ideas are still the, the basic structure of cash grants over um, program. I just, I see a con continual unfolding of many of his ideas. So um, I don't, I don't think we're, we're near the end of that for sure. Well, Unfortunately, though, we are at the end of this. So um, we are at the end of this interview. This was really fun. Thank you so much for coming on. The book is The Last Conservative. Uh, although I'm, I'm, I'm holding it up here, even though this is a purely audio medium. So, but you should go out and buy it. It's out, it's out it'll be out in bookshelves soon. So um, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it.